following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Good morning, church. It's so good to worship with you guys this morning. Uh, Church, would you just give the worship team a round of applause? They are such a blessing to us. These guys are awesome, right? So it is my honor to be in front of you today in a slightly different role to bring you God's word. And it does feel a bit awkward not to have a guitar in my hand. And I asked the elders if I could just keep it in my hand just to feel a little more comfortable. And yet I was denied. So I guess we'll just have to make do. So here we are. We're in this sermon series called Favorite Texts. And I think we all have those go-to texts that we memorize, those that we can recite in a moment's notice. But when you're asked to choose your favorite text, that's a pretty tough thing to do when considering all of Holy Scripture. I mean, how on earth are you to narrow it down to just one, right? You can open up our kitchen cabinets right now and find at least five good ones by just looking at the coffee mugs, right? How wonderful is the Word of God? We all know the greatest hits, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Been to a wedding lately? We have 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And how many t-shirts have you seen with this one on it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? And it would be a travesty if we left out Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love them, who have been called according to his purpose, right? One of the many things that I love about this church is that we love and adore the word of God. We cherish it. We look to it for guidance, for wisdom, to be encouraged, to exhort one another, and at times to admonish. Right? God's word is more than sufficient. It's perfect. Right? This is why we sing and we speak, we study, we store up, we obey, we praise and we pray. That's what men and women do to handle the Holy Scriptures. And we do it gladly. And how on earth do you choose just one? So for our text for today, it's, it's, among, it's among many favorites. When asked to preach on my favorite text, this was the one that was most afresh. And it's for something that happened not too long ago. Wes Ray and I, we meet up with a group of boys uh, during the school year to fellowship and to study scripture and simply to share life together. We, without going into full details, there was one night when we were in our study and somehow got stuck on the topic of discussing what do you fear? Right now, it was interesting to hear the responses. Yes, there were some of those answers like, you know, I fear taking a test or I fear my teacher and don't knock it. Still to this day, the mere mention of a test, it freaks me out. Right. And in first grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Sargent. And how can you not be intimidated by a woman named Mrs. Sargent? Right. Now, however, there was another response to this question of what do you fear? And it took me by surprise, right? When asked, what do you fear? This young man responded, I fear that I'm not really saved. I asked him to elaborate a bit. What did he mean by that? He continued to describe how he wasn't sure if anything that he did was good enough, 
right? Good enough for the Lord. How could he keep sinning if he was actually saved? He basically expressed this notion of how can the Lord save me if I continue to fail? How can the Lord use me if I fail all the time? Now, this was coming from a young man. He was wrestling with the idea that our failures contribute to the status of the gift that we have been given through Christ. But if we're being honest with ourselves, don't we all from time to time bring that mentality to our faith? Right? Don't we find ourselves falling into the enemy's trap of thinking, even if Christ did die for me, I'm still not good enough. Right? That all we are, we're just a bunch of sinners who continue to fail. Right? Do you bring that mentality to your faith? Do you not believe that you were truly born again? More on that later. Now, for the younger ones in the crowd, you may think that you always fail at what your parents ask you to do. For students, you may think that you fail in your academics. Young adults, you may think that you're failing at getting established, that you're supposed to be a little further along than what you currently are. Right? Parents, you may think that you're failing at raising your kids. You may think that you're failing at your job and your career. If we continue, we'll eventually arrive at us feeling like we fail at being a follower of Christ. All right? Pastor Dave says it all the time. We have a huge issue with how we monitor performance. And we often bring that mentality into our walk with the Lord. So our text for today was written by someone who probably felt like a failure. I'm talking about the Apostle Peter. Today we'll be reading from 1 Peter 1 through 9. And as you flip there, let's get a quick overview before we dive in. See, Peter wrote this letter to Christians that were part of what was called the dispersion. And the dispersion was where Jews were casted out to certain areas due to various causes and sent to foreign countries to make their home. Right? You can see how this would create struggles and trials, anguish, and I'm sure discouragement to say the least. I'm sure it's fair to say that these people had doubt of what God was doing in their lives. I'm sure they had doubt that just the trust in the religious leaders of the time. And I'm sure they even questioned their faith altogether. And this is why the letter was written. And it had the perfect author, Peter. So let's rewind to remind us who Peter was. We know a few things about Peter. Right. First off, we know that Peter was one of the the, the 12 disciples. Peter was bold and voiced himself well. We read that Peter was the first to state that Christ was the son of man. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, fast forward. Jesus and the disciples, they've been through a lot together. They've walked hundreds of miles and shared many journeys, many of which were trials. So now think back to when Jesus and the disciples were having Passover. And Jesus turned to them to reveal that he knew one of his own disciples would betray him. Right? The the rabbi just declared a horrible news to them and immediately started to look around the room at who it could be. Just imagine being there. Right? Imagine someone said that the person you respect the most or adore the most was going to be betrayed. It could be a loved one. It could be a coach. It could be a friend. Whoever it is. Right? How would you respond to that? What would you think? What would you do? Would you even say anything? Right? 
Now think about how you would feel if you denied even knowing who they were. We know that's what Peter did. Peter was regarded as one of Christ's most faithful followers, and he had denied him altogether. And you know the story. From that moment onward, Christ was tortured. He was beaten. He was mutilated. He was humiliated. He was dragged through the streets, drenched in his blood, bones broken, sliced open wounds, covering his body, and so much more. That's just the PG version. Now watch. Now just imagine watching him nailed to a cross and hung to die. Now watching him take his last breath, and then he was gone. Peter was filled with sorrow. Peter was filled with guilt. He was filled with shame. He no doubt felt like he was a failure. All right? He didn't know how to continue on. His world had stopped. He had lost hope. Now imagine his reaction to seeing Christ again. <laughs> Peter is the first person mentioned in the list of witnesses and is the first of the disciples to see the risen Christ It was a private appearance to reassure him since he had just denied his Lord, reassured him of the promise of hope. And on that note, stand with me in honor of God's word as we dive into our text for today, which is first Peter one, three through nine. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray, church. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful works of Christ. We thank you that you have interceded on our behalf, and to that we cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather amongst one another, brothers and sisters united in the banner of Christ, Lord. We thank you. Lord, allow us never to take this gift, the gift of salvation, as something as ordinary or mundane but only as the miraculous gift that only you could give us, Lord. And of course, let us glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, you can be seated. <clears throat> now that evening with those young gentlemen, this was one of the texts that popped into my mind. And I have no doubt that that was direction by the Lord himself. Now we discussed that we are born to a living hope, that because of the beautiful Christ, everything that needed to be accomplished in order for you and I to have salvation has been done. Everything. Period. Despite how often you think that you may fail. So let's jump to our first point of the day, and we'll focus on verse 3 here, here, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This verse points us to this truth. God establishes our hope in Christ. See, this letter was written as a letter to give hope. 
We can all agree that Peter had a bitter sorrow from his denial, but then Jesus appeared to Peter and restored his hope by seeing his Lord living and standing and breathing right in front of him. There's three things that jump out to me when reading verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy is the first item on this list. See, that mentality of thinking that your failure changed the status of your salvation, that can be pretty dangerous. Because if you follow that perspective back to its roots, you're also saying that you somehow have something that contributed to the gift of salvation. You're saying that because of your great intellect, you're born again. You're saying that because of your amazing athletic ability, you're born again. You're saying that because of the countless hours of hospitality, you are born again. You're saying that whatever you failed at was the thing that somehow earned you your salvation. Again, we have an issue with performance, right? Don't forget it. The only thing that we bring to the table when it comes to the gift of salvation is our sin. Only by God's mercy and love for his children do we have the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Second thing in verse three, he has caused us to be born again. Now we love using that phrase in Christendom, don't we? Born again. But do do you really take the time to think about what that truly means, right? What causes you to be born again? When we're born physically, none of us are the active agents in that birth, right? Every mother in here can shout yes and amen to that truth, right? Similarly, when you're born again spiritually, none of us are the active agents in the birthing process either. It's God and God alone that puts that into effect. Just as God gave Adam and Eve the physical breath of life, God breathes his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and regenerates our souls and transforms our minds. And as a result, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now, when you're born again, a change happens from the inside out. Right. Everything about you is different. Psalm 34, eight says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Almost as if you have brand new senses. Right. You, you see things differently. You hear things differently. You you say things differently. Your interests are completely changed. You are a brand new being. I'll never forget the time when I was in Iraq and we had this band come in as a morale booster. And this was a big deal because I was at a FOB, a forward operating base. And it just simply meant that we weren't safe as, as, uh, as other bases. So the band Smash Mouth flew in to give us a concert, right? You know, hey, now you're an all star. Get your game on. Go play. Right? Realize I just lo- just lost half of the room right there. So so let's move on. <clears throat> Anyways, I'm super excited to hear this band that I grew up with in high school. And for the most part, it was just awesome. It was definitely a nice change of pace. And they played a full concert and then, then they came on back for, they came back on for an encore, right? So, so they decided to do this cover song by the band Van Halen, right? I remember the synthesizers starting to come in. It's Van Halen after all. I remember that the bass player came in setting the rhythm and then the, the, the opening riff of the guitar and the drums came in heavy and I was just pumped. And then it dawned on me what song they were playing. The name of the song is Running with the Devil. If you know it, you should repent. (laughs) As soon as I realized what song this was, right, my enjoyment, it, it immediately faded. 
It was like I was transported completely to a different environment. I couldn't sing along. I couldn't nod my head. The enjoyment had left me altogether. And it was in that moment that I remember it first being blatantly obvious that I was born again. What I had found pleasure in before was just simply not the case. The old had passed away. Right? So do you see yourself as born again? Do you truly believe that? Right? Do you hold your identity as being a child of God? Let me ask you it this way. Do you consider yourself a sinner or a saint? Because here's the thing. Never does scripture refer to someone who is born again as a sinner. Right? You are now a saint, a child of God, a follower of Christ. Look at these verses that come up on the screen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. If you are born again, the old has passed away, the new has come. I am now a new being made alive in Christ. If you have an issue with me or with something that I did before the spirit entered me, you take that up with dead Perry. He's gone. Right? That's not me anymore. I have been made new because of my faith in the beautiful works of Christ on the cross. Do I continue to sin? Absolutely. But I've been saved by grace. Right? Therefore, I am now a saint. I know that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, someone who is dead anymore, but he sees his son and his righteousness that has been given to me. Amen? Church, we need to remember this. Being born anew of the Spirit is not the end of the Christian experience. It is only the beginning. Verse 3 guides us to see that because of God's great mercy, he himself is the one who has caused us to be born again. And hear this. Our rebirth is not an end in and of itself. It's only the beginning. And by causing us to be born again, our gracious God has instilled within us a living hope. All right, but let's just pump the brakes a bit and define what hope is. So in a quick search, what does hope mean? I was presented with a result saying that it's a noun. It's a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. What is hope? The desire for a certain thing to happen. How do you feel about that definition? I can somewhat agree with it, right? But it's not complete, is it? Not for the believer anyway. See, Peter tells us that we do have hope, but it's so much more than just a desire for a certain thing to happen. In fact, that very thing that everyone is desiring has already taken place. We have a living hope. It's a living hope because its foundation is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection did much more than just restore Peter back to his master. See, because of Jesus taking our place on the cross, because he was crucified, because he did everything that Peter witnessed him doing, we have a living hope. Because of the resurrection of Christ, there is a victory. There is victory over death. There's victory over our enemies. There's a victory over the enemy. And there is victory over ourselves. Church, we cannot lose sight of that. That's what allows us to be born again. It's God's grace working in us. It's a living hope because it's anchored in the past. Jesus rose. It remains in the present. Jesus lives. And it's completed in the future. Jesus second coming. Our hope lives. Right? It started. It continues. And it hasn't ended. Past, present, future. 
We have more than hope. We have living hope. Hope is salvation through faith in Christ. Now let's move on to our second point of the day. Verses 4 and 5 directs us to see why God maintains our hope to give us an inheritance. Why are we born to a living hope? To be given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So what is hope? And an inheritance that is imperishable. These verses point us to our second truth. God maintains our hope, our inheritance. Now, amen that God gives us new birth and our salvation. And not only that, but an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is left to you. It's something that is prepared for you in advance to receive at a later date. An inheritance is usually something of value. It's usually something that is, that is of worth, that it's precious, Right here you have our father in heaven, the creator of the entire cosmos, and he's declaring to us that he's giving us an inheritance. Right. Do me a favor. I want you to think of your greatest possession. Right. Think of your greatest treasure. Think of the one thing that you prize the most. Right. Think of the one thing that if you could just get your hands on it, you would just lose your mind. Right. For some, it might be a fully restored 68 Chevy Camaro. Not bad. For some, it might be a Cal Ripken rookie card in mint condition, right? For some, it might be an original 1950s Fender Stratocaster played by none other than Eric Clapton himself. Amen. All right. Whatever that one thing is, I want you to keep that in mind. And let's read what John describes as our inheritance. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now, I'm sure some of those things that you had in your mind were pretty good, right? But not that good. It's not just another possession, right? It's not just another thing. It's not just another treasure. It's an inheritance. It's something that we look forward to. And we're told that it's sustained by God's promise. This won't perish and that it's secure. Notice how Peter describes our inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is imperishable. It can never perish. And actually, Peter uses words to describe our unchangeable inheritance that all relate to the land that was the inheritance of Israel. The land of Israel was at times ravaged and destroyed by invading armies. And the prophet Isaiah describes the utter destruction in the whole world in God's judgment. Isaiah 24, excuse me, the earth will be stripped completely bare and will be totally plundered. For the Lord had spoken this message. The earth mourns and withers. The world wastes away and withers. The exalted people of the earth waste away. 
in my, uh, in my study that I, I read that in the Septuagint version of Isaiah, or just the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, that word stem for laid waste and wither is the exact same word that Peter uses in verse 4. It's as if he was giving a call back to Peter's readers to remember what was always promised to give exclamation at the fact that the world will be destroyed, but our inheritance is indestructible. Right? Our inheritance is undefiled, or you could say that it can never spoil, it won't decay, it's not going to vanish. That verse in Isaiah that I just quoted, it goes on to tell how people have defiled the earth by, by breaking God's laws. In a prophecy in Jeremiah 2.7, God declares that he gives Israel a fertile land, but that people come and defile the land and made that inheritance detestable. The land of Canaan, Israel's inheritance, the promised land, it was first defiled by heathen inhabitants and then by Israel's idolatry. Interesting enough, Peter is using the reader's knowledge of that event to paint a contrast to the new inheritance. The inheritance that was promised at the very beginning. In total contrast, the inheritance we have is undefiled and undefilable. Our inheritance is unfading. Canaan was not only destroyed by invaders and polluted by inhabitants, it was also parched with drought in God's judgment. Right? Take note, Israel received the earthly foreshadowing. We receive the heavenly fulfillment. And it's because our inheritance is in heaven, nothing on this earth can, or, can alter or destroy it. So just the other day, my family and I, we were preparing for a yard sale. And we then told the kids that they wanted to go through their toys and clothes, that anything that they sold, they could keep the money from it. So they went through all of their things and started to bring stuff downstairs to the living room to to be authorized for sale by mom and dad. And Emerson had a huge bag full of stuffed animals, right? It's a yard sale. you got to have stuffed animals. And i got to be honest, it's a tough, it was really, really tough to watch him want to get rid of certain stuffed animals, Right? Not only did it show that he was growing up, but I naturally associated these stuffed animals to certain memories of him just being a little guy. Right, One by one, we gave him the yay or nay to sell, but one in particular hurt. Right, It was a stuffed animal that he loved as a two-year-old, but that had clearly changed. Right, It once brought him so much happiness and excitement, and now it was simply to be given away to the first buyer. Right? It was Tuck, the turtle from the Wonder Pets. You know, Linny, Tuck, and Ming, Ming, too. We're Wonder Pets and we'll help you. Right? I had to sing today. Sorry, guys. Um, so the point is this. That, that treasure had faded a bit. Right? However, our inheritance, it won't fade at all. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. The one and only Jonathan Edwards writes this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are both scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. (laughs) 
The salvation that the prophets anticipated is the, is the grace that Christians have now, right this very moment. Yet Christians still await the salvation to come. There's a concept here that's a bit paradoxical. Complete as salvation is, ready as it is, even as experienced as it is, it still has a glorious future. In the last time, it will be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. <clears throat> Verse 5 says it's being kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded. It's being kept for us, church. Nothing needs to be added. No final touches are necessary. It's perfect, and we cannot lose it. By God's power, it's being guarded. Once again, I think of my kids when it comes to this verse. I think of those times where I promise them something, whether it's to take them to level up for ice cream, whether it's to watch a movie together. Whatever the case, a promise has been made, but then they decide to do something out of disobedience and they lose it all together, right? I think we've all been there as children, right? Sound familiar? I mean, something was promised by your parents, but you lost it due to a bad attitude or something along those lines. Something was promised, but you defiled it, and now that treasure has vanished. That's the sin of man. Praise God that that's not the case with our inheritance. Right? Praise God that there isn't anything I can do to change the status of what has been promised to me because of the works of Christ. Praise God that it isn't up to my obedience. I am a saint, but I know myself. I will sin. And praise God that it is by faith alone that I receive my inheritance and that it does not depend on my ability to keep my promises. My father-in-law points it out to me time and time again, this little note. Why do you think they call it a gift? Right? What do you do to receive a gift? Nothing. It's a gift. So if you did nothing to earn that gift, then what would you do to have it taken away? Listen to this quote by Edmund Clowney. It would be small comfort to know that nothing could destroy our heavenly inheritance if we could lose it at last. The wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. We are shielded until the great day when our salvation will be revealed. Just marvel at that. Right? We are shielded by God's work of our salvation until we receive our inheritance. God's mercy not only causes us to be born again, God's mercy not only sets Jesus' resurrection in motion, God's mercy not only has given us a living hope, God's mercy not only gives us an inheritance, God's mercy protects it to give us Christ. And that brings us to our third point. So why do we need this hope? Right? What do we gain from having hope? What's the point of having this thing called a living hope? Well, we know that this is a letter preparing us for every season of life, right? including those of trials, sufferings, loss, and turmoil. Peter is preparing us for something he knows a little all too well, trials. Does the Bible promise you a happy life? Right? Does the Bible promise comfort and a luxurious lifestyle? No. What does the Bible promise? Promises sufferings, promises trials, right? And we know something of, of trials here in Roseburg. It wasn't too long ago that nine people were shot at the college because of someone that, who had pure hatred in his heart. Right? Just drive around town and you can witness poverty, the homeless, and even those who have succumbed to drug use. We have family members who pass away, friends that are lost, and accidents happen. We know what suffering is. The question is, rather, how do we take on these sufferings, these trials, 
We're told that we're to do it with joy. But how is that possible? In the midst of a storm, how are we to be able to pray without ceasing and with thankfulness? How do we stay joyful during our trials? Six and seven. In this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we have trials? It's because it strengthens our faith. These verses point to our third truth. We can have joy through our trials. If we're honest with ourselves, then we can understand that. The reality is, is when we have comfort, we don't rely on God, do we? Not usually. We're being honest with ourselves. We rarely give honor to God in our comforts. When we're in times of peace, do we really give God the glory? Do we praise him for the blessings he gives us? Not naturally. Not first in any ways. So with that in mind, our trials are necessary. Trials strengthen our faith. Trials are how God molds us into the people that he wishes us to become. He uses them to purify our faith. Trials keeps us trusting him and they they burn away our self-confidence. Trials allow us to rely on him instead of ourselves. They drive us to our savior. Like fire being used to remove all the impurities from gold, trials take away the impurities of our faith. It takes something that was once not as valuable, not as appreciated, not as worthy, and turns it into something so precious and sought after. That's what God does with our faith in the midst of trials. He takes what once was not as strong, something quite weak, and frames it into something designed to tackle the woes of a fallen world to equip and ready for us to have the heavenly kingdom to come. Right? Trials bring about a strength that will allow us to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's through that lens that our trials can be found as joy. It's through that lens that James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. A joy can be found through trials by looking to Christ. And it's our hope that continues through our trials. And our hope in Christ goes beyond the trials. It's for that very reason that joy joins with our suffering. And it's, I know it's a bit abstract, and it's definitely not what the world teaches. However, because of our hope in Christ, our joy in Christ can give us a joy through our sufferings. And I'll say that one again. Because of our hope in Christ... Our joy in Christ can give us a joy through our sufferings. Bottom line, church, our suffering can't be compared to the glory that is to come. We know that this life is a temporary one. The world says you only live once, and that's true. But for us, for the believer, for the follower of Christ, we're reminded of the living hope and know that our lives will not end right here. We are internal beings, and don't you dare to think otherwise. Instead, be reminded of our living hope, and with that, we wait for the salvation that Christ will bring with him at his appearance. Just like Peter, we will be rejuvenated at the sight of Christ. We're going to be overjoyed that he is our living hope, and that's a wonderful thing. Again, Edmund Clowney says this, Our sufferings is not a sign that Christ has betrayed us or that he is no longer Lord, 
Rather, it is a sign of our fellowship with the risen Lord who first suffered for us. Suffering indeed becomes a sign of the glory that is to follow. Right? Do you think that way? Right? Do you rejoice in your trials? While your world is just blowing up all around you, do you wonder what or why God is allowing this event to take place? That takes discipline. Right? It takes spiritual discipline. It takes spiritual maturity. Some people get it. Some people don't. And I am definitely working on it. To get to the place where you look at a season of turmoil and while going through it, you say to yourself, praise God for this trial because I know that he is using it to build a genuineness of my faith. That maturity takes work. That maturity takes on a humility that can only be achieved by ridding yourself of your past identity and putting on the new one. Some people get it. Some people don't. Someone like Linda Hurd got it. Even while battling cancer, full of pain, she was still able to be her quick-witted self and continue to point people to Christ. Her sight was not on the present. Our sight cannot be on the present. It has to be on that glorious future. It's our inheritance. So we can be fixated on the here and now. We can look at this world as the only one we have. We can have that mindset that says this is where we will end. And you can see that's exactly how this world thinks. Why do you think people are so greedy? It's because they need to fulfill their wants before it's too late. Why do you think people struggle with entitlement? It's because they need to fulfill their desires before it's too late. Why do you think people are always in a rush? Because they need to get get their fulfillment before it's too late. Our trials strengthen our faith. Our faith gives us a joy by looking to Christ. And looking to Christ allows us to suffer. This is the final point of the day. We've been born again. We have a living hope. Our hope allows us to joyfully overcome our trials. Now what? Let's read verse 8 through 9 together, which says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have not seen him, you love him. How can we love someone we have never seen? Peter reflects on the love that his readers have for Christ, the love that makes them ready to suffer so that their proven faith can be his tribute. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter, of course, he had seen the Lord. His love for Jesus could bring pictures to mind. Jesus as in uh, uh, Capernaum, Jesus on the sea, lifting Peter from the water. Still, Peter knew that it wasn't the physical association with Jesus that joined him to his Savior. He knew that it was Jesus, that he knew Jesus was the Son of God by the gift of the Father in heaven. Not only do we have faith in Jesus and love for Jesus now, we also know already the joy that we're going to experience when we see him. We wait for the salvation that Christ will bring with him at his appearing. Yet we are already experiencing that salvation right now, and that makes us worship. And that's our final truth of the day. Church, we have a reason to worship the fact is, is that once we learn and come to know what Christ has done for us, our love for Christ is way stronger than any physical association. 
We learn what Jesus has done, why he did it, and our love grows. We study who Christ is and who our Father is, and our love grows. It's way deeper than anything we could have with someone we actually just see in person. It's a love only possible by the gift of our Father. It's a joy that's only possible by the gift of our Father. It's a joy and a strength that's only possible by the gift of our Father. So what does that mean for us, right? As we wait, as we wait this thing out, do we find ourselves in a rut? Do we go through life with a negative attitude? Do we do our daily routines thinking that this is just never good enough? No. Being fulfilled with the hope of Christ makes this life all the better. You no longer have to be worried about the gossip that's being spread about you. you no longer have to be worried about the promotion. You don't feel the need to get that next best gadget, right? To feel every, everything accomplished in your life because this is only the beginning. It doesn't ruin your day if the Wi-Fi is slow. Netflix is down, so what? It's no longer a traumatic event if you don't win the game, if you don't make the crucial play, if you don't get into the college of your choice, if you don't get the job you wanted. It's no big deal when you find yourself in that failure. We are fulfilled in Christ. We are fulfilled knowing that he has brought salvation, that he brings glory, that he brings victory, that he brings cleansing, that he brings righteousness. Peter was fulfilled with Christ. He saw that we have a living hope and he became one of the boldest apostles of all. We should strive to do the same as we worship. Right? It's for this reason we rejoice, we sing, and we give him the praise. We shout out of our love for him. We give thanks to him in every season. We see our trials as small in what and in who is to come. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is our strength. And our hope is where we are fulfilled, all because of that living hope accomplished by Jesus Christ. On that note, church, let's pray. And while we pray, I'll be reading a little excerpt from a wonderful little book, a gospel primer. And fellas, this was the one that you got passed out to at Father's Day. And if you didn't pick up one, I think we might have some. Yeah, we do have some more copies in there. It's uh, it's just gold. So church, go ahead and pray with me. The more I experience the riches of Christ in the gospel the more there develops within me a yearning to be with Christ in heaven where I will experience his grace in unhindered fullness. The reason for this yearning is simple. However great may be the present blessing of salvation, they are but the first fruits of the Spirit, the first installments of an unimaginably great harvest of glory which I will reap forever in heaven. The Apostle Paul could not rehearse gospel blessings without being reminded of his anxious longing for the future glories awaiting believers in heaven. Likewise, the Apostle John could not speak of his and his readers' status as children of God without also relishing beautification they will experience at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Neither will I be able to think long upon gospel blessings without thinking also of the infinite glories which will be mine to enjoy in heaven. Heavenly Father, we long for that day and we look forward to that day. And Lord, allow us to worship you while we are still here on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.